Welcome to On the Front Burner, where we give you a taste of important issues bubbling up in education and the world today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Matt O'Donnell, the Tech Innovation Specialist and History Content Coordinator at the Sonoma County Office of Education. And I'm Anna Babarande, Science Coordinator at the Sonoma County Office of Education. Our topic for this podcast is climate change and how it can be addressed in K-12 classrooms and at home. To give insight on this subject, we will speak with author Mary DeMocker. Well, hello, Mary. Welcome to the podcast. We're happy to have you here today. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. You recently published a book, The Parent's Guide to the Climate Revolution, and you create a list of 100 ways for people to build a fossil-free future. How did you go about creating this list, and can you tell us how you research these suggestions that you included in the book? Sure. Uh, maybe I'll give you the, the full title, the full subtitle, because that often helps people understand exactly what it is that I'm doing. So it's 100 Ways to Build a Fossil-Free Future, Raise Empowered Kids, and Still Get a Good Night's Sleep. The way I created the list was that I was lying awake at night worried about my kids' future when they were young. And so I began to look at ways that I could take action that was was beyond just shrinking our family carbon footprints. And this is really the book that I needed when I was raising kids. And when I began really working on that and working with young people, their parents often asked me for, you know, just give me a list of five or 10 easy things that I can do to try to protect my kids in the future. And that book, you know, came from the list of five or 10 things turning into 100 things. And it feels like such an overwhelming topic. So I wanted to approach it in this book in ways that that busy parents can really manage and even enjoy. And on that note, we hear from a lot of parents and also teachers that they do want to prioritize building this uh, fossil-free future, but they feel so overwhelmed. So of the 100 things, are there ways that they can start? um, And does that differ based on the ages of the children that they are either working with or raising? Yes, absolutely. So if if adults want to work with children, whether they're their own children or in the classroom or their nieces and nephews. This is this book is actually for anybody. I've been told, you know, it's it's really for anyone who wants to have some kind of impact on the climate conversation. So I say that for the youngest children, and this is where sometimes um, not every activist agrees with me on this, I actually don't advocate burdening very young children with very heavy climate science at all. I believe that when they're young, so let's say up to age five or six, it's really important to just immerse them in stewardship. So that looks like composting. And if you're able to bike and you enjoy that, do that. Whatever your family is able to do to model a sustainable, the best kind of sustainable living that you can manage in your family. And at the same time, model asking our leaders to also have good stewardship. So that means going to the occasional protest or the occasional town hall about maybe a wind farm or a pipeline that's being proposed. And maybe you want to have a say in the outcome of that decision. So my kids grew up going occasionally to those things and knowing that I and their dad were going more regularly. So we were modeling civic engagement, but not burdening them with some of the more intense and frightening aspects of the global climate crisis. So obviously, as they got older, we brought them more into the science and the the political barriers that are placed in front of science now. And that was age appropriate. So if they came to us with concerns, we would meet their concerns and really ask 
trying to understand, well, what are they worried about? And if they came to us with questions and we didn't know the answer, we would do the research with them. But overall, in general, children really want to know what the issues are and they want to be told the truth in ways that are age appropriate and developmentally appropriate so that they can really have the critical thinking skills and the the ability to process what's really an overwhelming amount of information and, and frightening material, even for most adults. So I think that we have to be really compassionate with kids and not expect them, even though there's a huge kind of youth climate movement now on this global level that's exciting and it's really energizing the climate conversation. I think we need to be really careful as adults to not kind of shift the burden onto young people, but instead to find ways to give them mentorship, to give them logistical support for the older kids that want to speak out, and to give them positive ways to engage that are empowering to them and uplifting and that are really appropriate for each family or each child's values and philosophies and and abilities and interests. So I have, you know, that's what the book is about. It's about finding your way in for, for your classroom, for your nephew, for your child, whether it's one child or a classroom. One of your 100 ways dealt with reducing the amount of our reliance on, on fossil fuels. And your I think the title of it was Escorting Big Oil Off Campus and from the Museum. And as educators, we often see you know Chevron or Shell sponsoring big, especially science or, or STEAM-related events. Can you give us some examples of what these industries are trying to do with those sponsorships and how we could maybe go about making a change. Yeah, I think one of the most insidious examples that I've seen is at the Smithsonian Museum in in Washington, D.C., which is the most visited museum on the planet. And billionaire David Koch was able to install, you know, with his $15 million, the Hall of Human Origins, which since since 2010 has been teaching kids all day long that humans have adapted to the past and what they to what they call dramatic climate changes. And then it kind of suggests that pretty strongly through some imagery that we're going to just adapt again if if the climate keeps changing and they don't really acknowledge that it is changing. So for example, we're, we're led to this um, these two cartoon guys in one section and one of them has a, a super long torso and the other has really sweaty armpits. And they're both smiling and asking, well, how do you think your body will evolve? Like, if it gets hotter, if it really gets hotter on the planet, are you going to have a tall, narrow body or like a giraffe, or are you going to have more sweat glands? So you're supposed to vote for, you know, how you think you like to evolve as if this were really something that kids could count on that if it ever, you know, really gets bad and hot here that, well, my body is just going to grow <laughs> an extra few inches or some more sweaty armpits. So I think it's, kids can reasonably be expected to conclude that global warming isn't a big issue for them, not happening right now. And if it does happen, their body will just change. And I think that's a really insidious form of misinformation that the Koch brothers were able to put into the most trusted institution on the planet. And I think we have to be careful, you know, directors of museums and teachers taking kids to museums have to be on the lookout for climate denial, for misinformation that's misleading kids about the causes of and solutions to human, you know, cause global warming. So I think it's an insidious campaign. It's, it's a documented campaign of misinformation we've known about the dangers of burning fossil fuels in particular and the dangers of 
you know, the carbon saturation in our atmosphere heating the planet for decades. That's been known by many of the um, you know, Exxon and Shell and BP, all that is is documented and that's been for decades. So I think what we need to do is make sure that when we are presenting information to children, whether it's through a textbook, whether it's a film, whether it's a visit to a museum, that that information is accurate, it's up to date, and that it's not trying to intentionally mislead children as so much of the information out there does. For example, the Heartland Institute in the past couple of years has been sending thousands of um, DVDs and glossy brochures about climate to science teachers across the U.S. And so one of the simple things people can do is, you know, parents can do and teachers can do is make sure that that brochure is not being used to educate your kids about uh, climate, the climate crisis. So that's just one simple thing is make sure that your textbook in your classroom is accurate and that your, you know, if it's your child, look at it with them. Ask questions about it. Teachers always send home the information that they're teaching. Take a look at it. Talk about it with your children. Ask if they understand. But really be on the lookout for those sponsorships and really advocate for a fossil-free culture in our cultural and as educational institutions. You know, really ask them, are you taking money from coal, oil, or gas when you visit a museum? And ask them to remove industry representatives from their board. So a lot of fossil fuel industry representatives will place themselves, you know, on the Museum of Modern Art board or on the Smithsonian boards. And they have direct influence over the content that's being put into the museums and in front of our children. As we look at students getting information, we also are seeing a lot of examples of them being empowered. They're getting information somewhere and they're speaking out on climate change issues. We want to see more of that. What strategies would you recommend for teachers and parents to further empower students and help them use yeah, their voices? I think there are so many different ways to do it now that are um, really empowering, whether that's starting out on the campus that you're on, for example, with, you know, what are we doing here to contribute to the problem or to help it? So do we have a school garden? Do we want a school garden? Can we compost our lunches? Can we have a zero waste campus? Can we maybe have meatless Mondays or vegetarian lunches? There are a lot of um, models for that, that, you know, schools don't have to reinvent the wheel. I have links to schools that are doing that in my book. And there are thousands of schools now doing the zero waste lunches. So that's something that's very local, very immediate, very hands-on. Another thing that kids can do is track the energy usage, you know, at their home or maybe at school. I'm not sure how, how all the schools work, but at home, there's a meter on the back of your apartment or house and the numbers are changing. So what does it take to make those numbers slow down to see how much you're um, using, how much energy? But overall, I, I do want to say I give those suggestions because people like hands-on and concrete ones. But I have to say my biggest suggestion is not to just focus on shrinking our own carbon footprints or only focusing on you know things we can do to green our schools because a lot of young people are being told that the only thing that they can do is to bike or recycle or grow gardens or grow zero waste. And it's really not fair, actually, to especially the older kids who are ready for, for the truth about the situation that they're facing for the rest of their lives, we need to give them the whole story. The real story is that individual efforts are never going to be enough at this point to slash emissions in time. We've been told by scientists that we have essentially 11 years at the most to basically slash emissions in half. So we have to stop pretending that we can tackle the crisis just by recycling at school and by, you know, composting. So we really need the conversation to move to what's happening with fossil fuels. The fact is burning fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas 
is making the climate crisis so much worse so quickly. So is cutting down a lot of trees, deforestation. So is a political system, and this is where it can get dicey, but we have to find a way through, is how does our political system work? Who gets to buy influence with our politicians? Who gets to advertise and help them win their seats? This is all about civics, and kids are ready for it as soon as they hit grade school. Obviously, you would start out with a lighter version of that, and then you progress as children's critical thinking is developed over time and they're developmentally able to really process some of the heavier topics that they're going to encounter if they're taking an honest look at the climate crisis and who is driving it at this point and the fact that their own government, their own president is denying that this even exists. So we've got this you know, disconnect between the science they're learning in school, if they're learning accurate climate science, and the message they're getting from some of the top officials in their own government about the reality of the, of the crisis. And this is a crisis that's going to be with them, that's going to threaten their health, is threatening their health already for their entire lives. And then as being, if, if you're honest with children, at some point they will learn if they listen to the news, if they look around at, at the wildfires in their own communities, they know that the world is in trouble. And so what we have to do is give them age appropriate and empowering ways to engage in solutions and really do something. So yes, many young people are speaking for the first time in school assemblies, they're writing letters to the editor, they're going to their elected officials, and that can be a great learning experience in terms of learning about civics, but it can also be really fun for them. And that's what I've seen over and over is that kids love when adults listen to them. And I, I guess that's probably the biggest thing I would offer is the idea of climate literacy and pairing climate literacy with civics. Some of the ways to do that are to study the Constitution, study the Bill of Rights. One of the classes I worked with um, were fifth graders, and they had some wonderful um, teachers that were doing a team teaching for a year. And so one teacher taught environmental science and climate, the climate crisis, and the other teacher taught the Constitution. So over, so mostly they focused on the climate crisis at the beginning and the environment and oceans and kind of how everything's connected to everything else. And then they switched over in the second half of the year a little more strongly to civics. And what they did was they empowered the children to ask questions and to learn about the climate crisis in ways that were age appropriate and that allowed them to discover what they thought about what they were reading and hearing. And for example, they would say, okay, we're going to read some climate science today. And what information are we reading today? What's the source material? What's the author's perspective? What do you get out of it? How does it compare to the other authors we've read this year? And then you let the kids make those connections. So these two teachers really pushed back on the idea that we can't talk about the climate crisis with kids because it's too much. You'll put fear into them. And what they said was there are appropriate ways to approach this to approach climate justice because children really want to know what the real issues are and they want help learning not what to think, but how to think. And so that's where, you know, what I just mentioned in terms of how to approach information and how to critique it, even as young as in fifth grade, those are 10 and 11 year olds. And so they got an incredible education and they found a way to extend that classroom climate literacy into the civic, civic realm with the support of other teachers and their principal and parents by giving the children themselves 
the ability to express themselves however they wanted. So for example, they were given the option of, you know, what do you care about? Let's answer this question. What do you care about in the world? What do you want protected? So some kids drew, you know, an owl, some kids drew salmon, some kid, one child drew a picture of his uncle who's a logger. You know, he wanted to protect that uncle's job in the forest. And then the children chose to either go up in public and in front of with around the courthouse steps. And we invited the mayor and and got the microphone. The media came, national media came actually. And each child was able to either say nothing by standing in a group going together or, or say something by taking the microphone or just hold up a poster of the thing that they cared about and would like protected. And each one got to enter into that sort of civic engagement at a level that worked for them, their comfort level. Some kids are really extroverted and they wanted to MC, they wanted to be in front of the cameras, they wanted to speak out. And other kids, you know, like one of my children is, is very introverted. He never would have <laughs> wanted to have the mic, but he would have stood there and he was, would have been happy to be part of speaking out in a way that's comfortable for him. So those are some of the ways that we can address this you know, in the classroom to address climate literacy, to address pairing it with civics. The other thing I want to mention is that if climate literacy isn't being taught in your school, and this is true for a lot of people, then the, what the teachers, you know, I interviewed my son's teacher to say, what should parents do as I'm writing this book? What do parents who live in other places where it's not even mentioned, much less taught, what do they do? And they suggested, you know, get together with other parents go, don't go by yourself, go with a group, go to the teacher, go to the principal. Some schools have site councils here in Eugene, that's who decides what the curriculum is that's going to be taught, which textbooks are being used. So go to that site council if you have one together with other parents and demand accurate climate science in the classroom. If that doesn't work, go to the school board, go to the media, go to the superintendent, but go together and bring kids along. If you're a teacher and you want to prioritize building a fossil-free future, say in a third-grade classroom, what would be the best strategy to start with? That's a great question. I I think the best way to start with young children like that is with uh, a book that a lot of teachers have really loved called Buried Sunlight, How Fossil Fuels Have Changed the Earth. And that's by artist Molly Bang and an MIT professor, Penny Chisholm. And that is a wonderful introduction to the larger picture of where did fossil fuels come from? It's, you know, the idea that it's photosynthesis that is in plants that they're then buried for millions of years and then drilled and dug out by humans. It really kind of transfers that knowledge to children about where all those fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas came from and their role in the larger picture of the Earth's history. So that's a great place to start. And then another would be hands-on projects. Kids love doing things. So if you have something like a school garden where you can see photosynthesis in action, you can see things growing. And another wonderful thing about that is that you get food out of that that can be shared and um, enjoyed by the children. And a third idea would be to try a solar oven to make s'mores. Kids that age love making s'mores and they can see the power of using simple, you know, very simple technology that they can make themselves to actually heat up, you know, a marshmallow and chocolate warm enough to be all melty and delicious for them to share in a classroom setting. But the science behind it is important because it shows them that the sunlight can be used by people to 
to give us our, to meet our needs. So those are just some kind of easy hands-on projects that can happen almost anywhere. If you're a teacher that has some pushback from parents or from administrators or from the community, what are some ways you can get around that? The latest research is really showing that parents, no matter where they are on the spectrum, are overwhelmingly wanting climate science in the classroom. So that's it's less and less of an issue in the classroom. More of the problem is that there's lack of good training for teachers. Now, I know that in some states there is pushback at the higher level in the administration or in government, so I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But in general, I think it's important for us to recognize that there are a lot more resources out there and standards. Schools are holding themselves up to higher standards in climate science, and they're, they're widely using what's called the Next Generation Science Standards. And that is a set of standards for you know what needs to be taught, that it's human-caused global warming that's happening, what the solutions are. And then though that group has paired with a lot of different providers to give curriculum, some of it free, online for teachers. Now, if people are unsupported in the classroom, if they're in some of those states like Oklahoma and Texas, that are, are going backwards on their climate education, there are ways to kind of slip it into the curriculum of almost any subject. Let's say you're teaching high school economics. <laughs> Everything leads to the climate crisis. If you're teaching geography, if you're teaching chemistry, physics, earth sciences, everything leads to what's happening on a global level with the climate. So one of the things that actually my husband does, he's a math teacher at a college, community college, and he will bring some math problems that have to do with parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere and what will it take to bring it down. My husband has a math colleague whose entire curriculum for math for an entire term is all based in climate questions. That's It's not a climate class, it's a math class, but there's so much that you can do because Climate is kind of a complicated subject when you get down to some of the, you know, the math and the science around it. There's a lot that you can do to learn and to use those examples to deepen student understanding. Now, interestingly enough, there's been a report recently uh, where they surveyed teachers and parents, and they found a lot of them agree that climate change should be taught, but the teachers are kind of assuming that it's happening at home. The parents are assuming it's happening in the classroom, and so the students aren't getting the information. Assuming they're all on board and they all agree, yes, this should be taught, are there resources or strategies that you found to help uh, the teachers and the parents partner together to make it cohesive for the students? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think some of the things that we talked about in terms of, you know, looking, looking at their, uh, in terms of at home, looking at their textbooks, you know, one of the things that um, my son's teacher said is put down your phone and talk to your kids about what they're learning. Ask teachers what climate science they're teaching and give them books like Drawdown if they don't have it. That's a great resource for um, especially teachers in middle school and high school. They rate a great website. It's free if you don't have the book. I think some of the things that, that I suggest are to teach the Constitution, teach people about, teach kids about their local representatives. You know, I just visited D.C. with my children and we walked around to the different offices of our favorite representatives. And my kids are 20 and 23, and they didn't even know you could do that. So teach them how government works. Teach them, you know, explore with them together. Where does our power come from? Who makes the decisions about how much renewable energy is used? How is, you know, what kind of farming are, are, are being tried? What, what, what's regenerative agriculture? What are, how do we sequester carbon in the soil? How does carbon even get made? You know, a lot of people don't really understand the difference between coal, 
you know, you burn and these big coal plants and gas that you get in your car or gas that's in your stove or oil. It, it's kind of confusing, but that's that's a fun project for kids. Have them learn how different kinds of fossil fuels are made and and then have them learn what what's dangerous about it or, or it doesn't even have to be what's dangerous. Have them research it and find out for themselves, does it work? Is it is it polluting? What are the impacts of burning fossil fuels? So one final question for you, Mary. Where can people pick up your book? And are there other online resources like Facebook groups or other social media areas where they can share some of the victories or actions that they're taking as a result of the book? Yeah, they can go to my uh, Climates Revolution uh, site on Facebook. They can go to my website. I have a newsletter that's starting to come out more regularly now. And I'm going to be unveiling more opportunities like that for people to share, um, you know, some of their solutions. There are people are writing me that they have new parent focused groups that are springing up around my book um, and, you know, far off places like England and Texas. So I'll be this fall launching support groups for people who are starting those groups and that want to connect with one another and share ideas. And how do we talk to our kids? How do we maybe approach this particular rally? How do we approach this particular um, fossil fuel project in our area? So I do want it to be a resource sharing community. And that's, you know, that's on the it's on the burner for this. It's on my, it's in the pipeline for this fall. So people can go to marydemacher.com and sign up for my newsletter and look on Instagram. And I think those are the two main places probably are my website and Parents Climate Revolution on Facebook. Well, we thank you so much for sharing the information today. We will put those resources on the podcast website. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for inspiring people that they can do something even when they feel busy and overwhelmed. I think that's a really important message. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to On the Front Burner. This podcast was produced by the Sonoma County Office of Education. 